Hello, all you dreamers, optimists, and junior Tomorrownauts. Welcome to the Tomorrowland Times podcast, the unofficial home for fans of Disney's 2015 Tomorrowland movie, its prequel novel Before Tomorrowland, and the alternate reality game that introduced us to its fictional universe all the way back in 2013, The Optimist. I'm Nick. And I'm Hasten. And this is the fifth episode in our 12-part series in which we'll be taking a deep dive into Brad Bird, Damon Lindelof, and Jeff Jensen's sci-fi family adventure and budding cult classic. Before we get into today's episode, Hasten, we've got a little bit of business. We got a message from our dear friend, Stephen C. Smith, listener and longtime friend of Tomorrowland Times. He wrote in about Hugo Gernsbach, not the character played by Keegan-Michael Key, but the very real person who inspired the name of that character. Hasten, were you aware that the real Hugo Gernsbach appears in Tomorrowland in an episode we already talked about? No. Okay, so Stephen pointed this out. I have never noticed this before. I'm going to go ahead and put a link to this picture in the show notes because it's really interesting. The real person, Hugo Gernsbach, invented these TV goggles. There's an iconic portrait of him wearing them, and he has a very particular hairstyle, and his face uh, is fairly recognizable, and it seems like they cast an extra in the science fair competition scene about two people in line behind Frank. There's a guy wearing these goggles, and I swear to God, he does look like the real Hugo Gernsbach. He does. He really does. They really went out of their way trying to cast someone to stand in as him in a non-speaking role. Well, and we see these goggles again. That's right. So speculation-wise, I'd say either he won the science fair competition or Nick's did not grant him the prize, but took those goggles because we see Nick's wearing those goggles in the fabulous World of Tomorrow Science Hour short that was released on the Blu-ray and home video for Tomorrowland. And that that short is so wonderful. It was directed by Anthony Giacchino, Michael Giacchino's brother. And I think it deserves an episode all its own at some point in the future. I love that short. Great integration, great clever thing. I assume more than one person won the $50 prize. Like we're talking about a group of people who had unlimited resources to travel to an alternate dimension, but apparently they only had one $50 prize. I don't think so. Yeah, I would be very curious to find out whose idea this was. Was this something that came from Bird, Jensen, and Lindelof? Or was this just a really ambitious casting director who thought this would be a great way to build this out and appropriate to the movie being the name of a character who will appear later in the timeline? And yeah, so that's a mystery that we can add to our list of ongoing Tomorrowland mysteries. And perhaps we can even get to the bottom of it at some point in the future. So Stephen, thanks so much for sharing that observation with us. Never would have caught that in a million years. And I think it's a fabulous detail about an already great scene. Just fantastic. Another thing, Haston, back in the Pinvitation episode, I'm not even sure if this made it into the final cut of our podcast. So we might be discussing the first deleted scene from a podcast that almost only talks about deleted scenes. Uh, We were talking about Valencia, the city of arts and sciences, that wonderful building where the spectacle capsule lands. And of course, at the end of the Pinvitation sequence, Casey boards the spaceship. Now, we were looking at the Google map view and some of the on-site pictures people have taken of the real world building. And that particular walkway that comes out from the main walkway doesn't appear to be there. And we were wondering, did they build that for this? Or was that a blue screen thing? Or what was the deal with that? And sure enough, 
looking through the Tomorrowland Times archives, I did find some paparazzi set photos that showed the construction before they showed up to film. They built those walkways and they used the same handrails to make it look seamless as if it was coming from the main thing so they could walk out and see over what would eventually be digitally replaced with Tomorrowland. But I thought that was an incredible bit of effort to go to for a location that they specifically chose so that they would have a real place and that they were augmenting it to what I would consider a pretty extreme degree. I mean, building a whole platform out over the water, that's... That's a lot of effort. Absolutely. When we go to visit this particular building, we are not going to be able to recreate any of those moments that take place on that particular platform. But we'll be able to point to it and say, look at that. Or maybe we'll even be able to spot a little seam in the handrail where they replaced it. 10 year anniversary trip? Question mark? I don't know. We've got some pretty big plans for the 10th anniversary. We might not have time to do it that particular year. But more on that in the future. Please, I saw. It exists. Of course it does. So today, we're going to be covering the section of the movie from runtime 46 minutes and 30 seconds to 54 minutes and 55 seconds. So just under 10 minutes of the movie. And this represents the real beginning of the road trip portion of the movie. Athena is taking Casey somewhere she doesn't know yet, but we know is Pittsfield, New York. So before we dig into the actual scenes, Haston, let's break down this trip. In the last episode, we talked about how long in real world time does this movie take place? And so in this particular section, this road trip, going from Houston to Pittsfield, New York, what are we dealing with here, Haston? Let's talk about the vehicles that they're in first, because that's important, because vehicles have a set speed. When they first break into the car after the blow up at the Blast from the Past shop, they're in a 2000 Cadillac DeVille DTS. Mm, some grandmother probably left it parked there. Absolutely. They then toss that aside very quickly in one of my favorite scenes. We'll talk about that in a bit. For a 2014 Chevrolet Silverado regular cab. Mm. Now, how fast does that puppy go? It goes about 125 miles an hour is the top speed. Doing the math there, if they could have theoretically for most of the trip, because, you know, they hop over to that truck pretty soon after they have the Cadillac. How quickly could they get there if they topped that baby out? If they topped it out, just over a half a day, 13 and a half hours. That's a long road trip with no restroom breaks. Now, obviously, Athena doesn't need to stop, doesn't need to stop to use the restroom, apparently doesn't need to charge still question about that she's totally fine for that entire time but casey of course has to make a phone call yeah we see the nightfall occur so there is also a sense that they're on the run they're being chased they know this they're not going to be doing anything too risky i don't think they're really going to be pushing the speed limit so if we're talking safe driving let's say observing the the speed limits what are we talking here so Google Maps estimates it at about 25 hours. And that okay. to me seems pretty realistic given the time frame of she's got to, they've got to swap off. Somebody's got to go to sleep. Casey's got to pee, obviously, at a rest stop or a convenience station. Off screen, Maybe of the same yeah. place she takes the phone call. Hey, they cut away from that pretty quick. Who knows? We, she might have grabbed... <laughs> She might have grabbed a soda, some food. She's got to refuel herself. You know, we can't uh, we can't know what's going on in the middle of nowhere. And then, uh, yeah, so about 25 hours. So we're we're up to about probably two and a half to three days for this film already. At the very least. And, you know, there's there's moments where it could go even longer. So that estimate of about a week seems to hold up. And uh, this particular 
shifting of day to night seems to be accurate to what the real world drive would entail. So good on the filmmakers on that. Feel free to send us your audio notes if you actually have taken this drive. (laughs) What just happened? Two AA units targeted you for extermination. I saved your life. They self-destructed. Wait, AAs? Or do animatronics? They were robots? So back in the Cadillac, they're peeling away from the blast from the past door. And Casey is tending to her bloody nose as Athena drives. And she's asking what the heck is going on. Now, this is when Athena starts to drop some truth bombs on her. Clearly, we can't deny this kid is a robot. It can't be denied anymore. But she's correcting Casey about the terminology, not robots, AAs, or audio animatronics. Now, Hasten, how do you feel about this particular Disney reference in the film? I'm super glad it it it's one of these things where I'm super glad it made it in. Like for people, it's a relative deep cut. You know, it's a great way to tie in the stuff that they were doing in the book because there's a couple references to AAs in the book as well. And of course, you know, all the animatronic stuff from the World's Fair and everything else. Like it's a really fun reference and I'm super glad they left it in. There are some pedantic audience members that I've heard from that say that, you know, the type of specific audio animatronic technology pioneered by Walt doesn't have anything to do with real life robotic android people. And I say to that, well, can't you just acknowledge that it's a fun reference to the history that's both in the movie and outside the movie? And also how we often in the real world will hold on to legacy names for technology long after the specific reference is there. Laser printers don't have lasers in them anymore. Right. And yet that's just still the colloquial term. So this is, I think, is well within the realm of believability for the evolution of a technology, even in a fictional context. And I say, if someone wants to throw out a fun reference to the history of themed entertainment, let them. It doesn't happen that often. We got to take the wins that we can get. This is a case where I think that if this film were being made and released today, the interpretation of this would be totally different. I think Mm -hmm. at that time there was not like the the Disney parks were not quite in the zeitgeist fully like they are now. And I think now, you know, fans would be ecstatic to have this sort of semi parks inspired film. Absolutely. And here is one of those few little touches that remains of that kind of connectivity. I'm a crude man. So to really underline the idea that Athena is this robot, you know, she has this exposed glowing blue innards that she's attempting to repair with this little kit that she has on her to patch herself up. And she starts to have voice modulation. You know, she starts speaking another language. She's pitched up and down. There's all these different uh, interesting layers of audio effects going on and a particularly funny one that I enjoyed that I assumed was simply something done in the edit, but was interesting to find was done on the page spelt just like it sounds was when she calls herself a recruiter, but then gets interrupted re re crouton and they spell out the word crouton like one might put on a salad. So I appreciated the phonetic inclusion of that audio gag. And you know, it just goes to show you, you can put these things on the page. Sometimes in screenwriting, people tell you not to either direct from the page, not to edit from the page. But if you've got an idea for a particular gag, you see here, you can just put it down. If it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But if it does, it might make it all the way through like this one did. (laughs) 
Athena's fixing herself up and Casey freaks out and she decides I'm getting out of here. She reaches her leg over into Athena's driver's side of the car and slams down on the brake. Now, I suspect that this shot may have been done on a GoPro. It's extremely short in time, and it's in this corner of the car that I would find very difficult to believe they hollowed out a vehicle just to get that particular shot that lasts really only a few frames. But more learned folks than me can freeze frame. Go ahead and freeze frame that shot and see what you think about the quality if you've got a nice high bitrate blu-ray at home good to note too like this would be the first you know this is only like a couple generations into gopro and so potentially using them in a film was kind of kind of unheard of at the time because they had not like they had not taken off like the later revisions like very very early in the gopro life if they ended up using a gopro they they were very prominently used on certain television shows i remember quite a to-do being made about them being used on the office back in the day and we do know that when claudia miranda and brad bird and disney went out to decide which camera they were going to shoot the movie on they did this huge test in la where they bolted like seven different cameras to a rig and tried to get the same shot from all of these different formats to decide hey visually but between film digital all of our options what's going to be the best working process and picture for this movie and the article in the cine alta magazine that we've linked to previously and i'll link to in uh this week's show notes as well disclosed that they threw a gopro on that rig as well so in order to uh compare digital formats they had that on there and perhaps in that projection of those tests they realized little throwaway gags like this or completely destructive stunt moments that are going to be pretty short in terms of runtime, you can easily do on a GoPro. So uh, that's my theory. I don't have any real confirmation of it other than just the extreme tightness of the angle underneath the car. Anything's possible, but that's going to be my theory. We'll have to find a 2000 Cadillac DeVille DTS <laughs> and buy a 2013 GoPro HD and see if it matches up. And you know where we would have to go to replicate it, Hasten. Well, right now we're pulling into the location station. The hover rail will be arriving in one minute. The moment where Casey slams on the brake and the Cadillac veers off to the side of the road and she runs out in an attempt to escape this creepy kid robot. That was filmed at Hornby Drive between 104 and 112 in Delta, British Columbia. Another fine Canadian thoroughfare to film this Tomorrowland moment. Where are you going? Stop! I'm trying to help you! Now, when Athena gets out of the car and follows Casey across the street, one of the more shocking and hilariously unexpected gags in the film finds her being slammed into by a passing truck, which Casey will commandeer while the driver tends to the kid that he thinks he just killed. I, you know, I kind of feel sorry for this guy. He doesn't know, like Casey knows, that this is a robot. And this guy just looks panicked. His life is over. This is going to ruin him forever. Then some teenager runs back and steals his truck. You know, there's there's quite a bit of Grand Theft Auto in this movie. This movie rated PG. And, you know, I did hear from a lot of people, both in reviews and in person, that the violence for a PG film, we're not used to that anymore. You know, before PG-13 existed because of Temple of Doom throwing everyone into a tizzy, PG movies meant parental guidance. You would have a little bit of suggested violence and uh, maybe slightly more intense moments. Uh, but now it's almost unheard of for any live action film to be rated PG whatsoever. 
And so I think that there was this expectation that Tomorrowland was going to have a squeaky clean, no threats, even if it's a cartoon violence to a robot character. And this is one of those weird jarring images that, you know, is a pretty big conceptual risk with having a child as a robot be a main character in the movie. And, you know, obviously, I think that's part of what makes this movie so so interesting and kind of so groundbreaking, right? We see a lot of same of the criticisms towards the end of the film with Athena's relationship, but we kind of get the first taste of like, oh, she's a kid and she's a robot and you can do a lot with that in this scene. It's such a bold base concept that really does affect so much of the movie. And it's the type of rough edge that you can imagine being filed off in the executive process. And it is one of the more admirable things about the movie and makes it even more confounding that they weren't willing to capitalize on that really unique original concept in the marketing by holding Athena back. You know, they thought that this was their magic bullet. When you don't give anyone enough of a taste to get them into the theater, it doesn't really matter that you have that magic bullet in your back pocket. Because certainly, I think anyone who did see the movie, the Athena character was such a runaway success and one of the high points of the whole thing. So to allow all the pearl-clutching mothers in the audience to drop their necklaces and continue to enjoy the movie, Athena quickly reboots, she shoots straight up, and with a few unsynchronized blinks of her eyes, she has no trouble gaining enough speed to leap into the back of Casey's stolen truck, and she smashes through the back window when Casey slams on the brakes in a panic. I love the choreography of all of this. It's so well staged. The compositions are perfectly staged to allow you to know exactly what's going on at all times. And uh, moment to moment, the flow of it is just so funny and so exuberant and so energetic. Uh, This is when I feel like if you want to talk about the movie finding its stride and really having an original sense of pace and sense of identity, this is a moment where I think you really couldn't do this in any other movie but Tomorrowland. Especially really playing into the whole, you know, person is a robot thing in a very very different way right it's weird because you had this sort of angle and then you saw a lot of not going to say copies but you know a lot of like sort of modern interpretations of this same sort of concept like we saw in Westworld and whatever else with like oh well these robots aren't just human strength they're above and beyond but again to do it in a kid is such a unique factor that makes it even more unexpected right and you know I know a lot of these uh, gags were digitally enhanced. You know, her running down the street was uh, sped up and blurred additionally. But, you know, Raffi Cassidy really did perform many of her own stunts. I don't know if she was a, a gymnast, but I do know that a lot of these things she was able to do herself. There's behind the scenes footage of her tumbling and rolling. I'm not specifically sure when it would switch between her and her stunt double, but Athena was occasionally portrayed by stunt double Jade Kwan, who also appeared in films like Bird of Prey and J.J. Abrams' first Star Trek movie, and many others, of course, but she would often double as child characters, which I think is a pretty cool niche to carve out for yourself in the stunt community. Casey goes into hysterics when Athena breaks off the door handle and traps her inside. There is no escaping from Athena. I love when Athena pulls the the ignition out of the car and you get the sparks and everything else with this like extreme razor precision in the shot. It's so great. 
Right, and it's cut so quickly, and it's so precise, and I just love it because you're being hit a mile a minute with all these things, and it it just starts to build up. It's really funny, particularly when they start yelling at each other. They're just having this yelling match, and in the heat of that, Athena lets spill that Casey got her very last pin, and she was not about to waste it. So this starts to intrigue Casey, and she starts to, in turn, calm down. It's sinking in. That place that she saw... It actually exists. Athena clarifies, but with another tease. But if you don't come with me, it won't be much longer. Why not? Because they built something they shouldn't have. Ah, the plot thickens. Reaching past the plot into the language of theme, Athena then asks Casey, Do you want to keep asking me questions until someone arrives to murder us? No. Then which way do you want to go? Backwards? Or forwards? In this moment, Casey is like a junkie. She'll go along with anything to get another taste of that future. It's certainly a relatable moment because she's been shown something so exciting and the battery run out just at the most tantalizing moment. And now she's on this wild goose chase across the country with this absurd cast of characters. She's been attacked by two adult robots. She's being chased by a child, but she still wants to get to the bottom of this and see that place again. If it's actually real, which it's starting to seem like enough people around her believe that it is, she's going to do whatever it takes to get there. And reflecting on our personal experiences, this is a lot of what 2014 felt like, right? Mm -hmm. We flew across country to go to New York Comic Con. We were the first in line for the panel. You know, there was a real, there was a real, like, we just wanted that taste. And yet again in this film, you know, to make it this personal experience and the idea of living the movie this is exactly another moment when it's like oh we lived this right if if casey newton was a real person the two of us could certainly relate to her on the level of tomorrowland groupies it's a limited club but (laughs) with with esteemed membership uh so this scene ends with casey uh demanding that she's gonna drive if we're gonna keep going here uh but in the screenplay before this moment She asks Athena, what's it called? Meaning, what's the city called? And Athena replies, Tomorrowland. This is another one of several verbal mentions of the name of the place that were ultimately deleted, leaving it unsaid until the final act in the finished film, which is so interesting considering there were numerous TV spots where one of the editing gags for the commercial was to cut different characters saying the word Tomorrowland up against each other. And in the movie, Frank is the only one who gets to say it. Tomorrowland. 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 Back at Blast from the Past, just as a fire truck leaves the smoldering carps of the store as cops pick through the debris, we meet the Dave Clarks. Now, Haston, do you know who these Dave Clarks are named after? I do not. Who are they named after? They're named after a band from England called the Dave Clark Five often shortened to the DC-5. They formed in Tottenham in 1958. So this would have been right around the time everything was going down before the World's Fair. And uh, who knows when Nix began to create these robust guard droids. But at the very least, we know this British man listened to this British band and decided all my robots need to have the same name. And that name's going to be Dave Clark. I will say, though, spoiler alert... There are more than five Dave Clarks in the movie. (laughs) I think what I love about the Dave Clarks is you sort of have that. And I think this is probably another sort of Parks nod 
is you sort of have that kind of like, I'll take it from here, kind of perfect cast member, you know, the old rumor of nobody dies on Disney property, even though that isn't true, right? You have the same sort of like, like stereotypical overt cleanup crew that's designed to like resolve this situation. And I thought that was kind of a fun nod to, you know, the, the sort of public's perception of that angle in the in the themed entertainment world. And just in terms of visual performative storytelling, every time I saw it with an audience, the moment this guy steps out of the van and those teeth show up and he's got that expression on his face, that sort of fake glistening smile, everybody knew who this guy was. There was no question about what the movie was going for. And I think it was a great tonal choice and a bit of incisive commentary on the Disney company itself, because you do get this sense that it's the happiest place on earth and everyone's always going to be smiling and laughing and positive. And there is something mechanical. There is something unnerving about that sort of unnatural, glistening, shining, toothy smile. Afternoon, sir. Dave Clark, Secret Service. <laughs> Looks like you got yourself a doozy here. Secret Service? Hey, where are they going? They're securing the premises. Thanks so much for your help, but we're going to take it from here. Now, with their costumes here, we see them in these nice suits, but underneath the suit jacket, we see him in this gray mock turtleneck. And this is the same mock turtleneck that will be seen underneath their later, more iconic overall costumes. And this brings us into our recurring segment, the Museum Minute. History, art, nostalgia. Rather, it was lost forever. This is going to be less than a museum minute, Haston, because here's what I have to say. We have a couple of those turtlenecks. Which is fantastic. End of story. <laughs> There's a zipper up the back to allow them to be able to, of course, put on the makeup. You'll often have hidden zippers in film costumes that allows them to more easily take them off without pulling them over people's heads and ruining the makeup and hair. Fire chief says we're clear to go in and poke around. Hopefully they were out for lunch and nobody was in there when she went boom. So this lead Dave Clark member, played by Matthew McCall, approaches an officer, which we can determine is named Captain Dale Page, because his name badge says Page, I think. And one of his fellow officers says, hey, Dale, look what I got. So we got a name. We got a full name here for a side character. We're going to celebrate that when we can call anybody anything other than beefy cop. We're going to call them by their name. This is Captain Dale Page. And there's a great gag here that I think a lot of people don't pick up on is there's a bomb squad dog. Right, of course. And the bomb squad dog is is yelping at Dave Clark, which makes sense because all of the AAs have the bomb trigger inside of them. And I thought that was a really fun, really minor detail that a lot of people missed out on. It's great because it both echoes what we've just seen happen in Blast from the Past with Hugo blowing up. And it's a foreshadowing of what will eventually happen at the end of the movie. And so, uh, you know, third time's a charm with that one. It definitely speaks to the destructive potential that the AA units have uh, in this universe. Hey, Dale! Found this just outside the window. Ever seen anything like it? What the hell? God almighty! Sale! This week, 70%. At this point, an officer produces Ursula's grotesque AA skull with only the tongue and eyeballs remaining. It begins to loop clips of her dialogue, but the one that catches Dave Clark's attention and indicates that these cops have heard too much is... Was it a girl? A little girl? Was it a girl? A little girl? They're on the right track. 
And this brings us to one of the more controversial aspects of the movie, going back to Athena being hit by a car. Dave Clark straight up kills these cops. He turns them to dust with his disintegration pistol, which honestly doesn't really seem like it would fit inside his form-fitting suit jacket. So his super speed quick draw uh, must have been a digital composite. It's a fun thing to freeze frame and say, where the heck is that pistol coming from? The choreography of this brief rampage is pretty impressive compositionally. It ends with a cop fleeing with a skull in his hands, which he drops when he's disintegrated in full motion, and it bounces and lands precisely under the foot of the lead Dave Clark. His precision is totally impressive, and it's unsettling, just like his, his glistening white smile. You want to tell me what's going on here, son? No, sir. I do not. Contact Governor Nix. Tell him we found the girl. The throw from this scene to the next is when he says, Contact Governor Nix. Tell him we found the girl. This continues the slow drip of information up to this point. This is our first indication of those intervening years. Not only is that Nix guy from 1964 still alive, he isn't just a recruiter anymore. Something is rotten in the state of Tomorrowland. We jump from Blast in the Past. We're back into the truck. We're trucking our way up to New York. It's nighttime. Athena is repairing herself while giving directions to Casey. And in this deleted moment, we see this interesting concept that did not make it into the film of Athena accidentally triggering her onboard hollow projector, which I don't think we ever saw in the whole film. Not on, not on um, Athena, we didn't, no. Throwing a video onto the truck's windshield, Casey's childhood flashback. And the scene went a little something like this. Casey says, what was that? And Athena says, a malfunction, all fixed now. That was me when I was like three. How was that in your head? I got it off YouTube. YouTube? YouTube? Don't be angry at me because your parents violated your privacy. I love that little incisive bit of modern... Uh, technology privacy satire that they attempted to lace in there. But, you know, I think this was definitely the section of the movie where they were experimenting with exposition and how much detail and backstory they actually needed to make you understand. And in one of the interviews that Lindelof did before the movie came out, he talked about one of those early friends and family screenings before they had done any of the reshoots and the movie was still pretty much just an assembly. It was two hours and 45 minutes long. And really, they were just trying to gauge with people that had no idea what the story was. How much do you need? What do you need to know? And so there was this list of things. And so many of them, people just said, don't need it. Don't need it. We understand. We get it. We get to the point. Because when every other storytelling decision you make is influenced by those particular details, sometimes removing the explicit mention of them doesn't affect the fact that the point gets across throughout all those ripples that spread out. And so I think this sequence does have a few of these deleted moments because it essentially is two characters driving and talking to each other. So they don't want to linger too long, but they do want to expand the audience's knowledge of what's going on because this is a mystery movie and there are a lot of lingering questions. Uh, But, you know, the nature of how Athena has been watching her seems like an important thing probably when you're writing the movie. But when you see the film and it's finished, knowing that she is doing it, for me, is certainly enough. This is just a fun little ephemeral side thing that we can read in the screenplay and think what could have been. So Casey's frustrated at the lack of information, and she just straight up asks where they're going. She's being pointed, oh, veer left, and they quickly turn down this side bridge, which 
was filmed where, Haston? At the Pipeline Road Bridge in Stanley Park, which our listeners may know is a fabulous park located in Vancouver. I have I have been I have been to this park. Have you really? It's a very famous park. Did you cross this bridge? I do not recall crossing this bridge, but if I'm ever back up in Vancouver, I will be sure to steal a Chevrolet pickup truck and drive across the bridge. According to our favorite website, which we are not affiliated with, moviemaps.org, this bridge has been featured not just in Tomorrowland, but also The Flash, Fringe, Caprica, John Doe, and Backstrom. So this is a pretty popular bridge. Villa! More of a heads up next time. Hey, here's an idea. Why don't you just tell me where we're going? Pittsfield, New York. What's in Pittsfield, New York? Someone who can guess us back in. Now that's got Casey's attention. She pries for even more information in the screenplay. Why do those robots want to kill me? Based on my personal experience, I'd assume it's because you're being uncooperative. Oh, ha ha ha, you're hilarious. Really? Do you think so? No, you know what I think? They tried to kill me because they want to keep that place I saw a secret, and anyone who's seen it gets zapped. I don't disagree, says Athena. This is an interesting little exchange, because not only do you get a little bit on Athena's own backstory by saying, based on my personal experience, I'd assume it's because you were being uncooperative, as a way of saying I was uncooperative, and this is exactly what happened to me. We also get this moment where Casey says she's hilarious, sarcastically, And Athena perks up and says, really, do you think so? This is giving us a pre-echo of the flashbacks we'll see later in the film and cover in another episode that sets up a recurring motif about laughter and joking between young Frank and Athena. So Casey's worried that she's been surveilled since she was three years old, but Athena corrects her and defends herself by saying, I only found you a month ago and started wanting you to join government property, which happens to go on my search premises for recruitment. So Plus Ultra must think that dreamers are often rebel rousers. I guess that's proven true throughout history, but it's interesting that it was obvious enough to them as rebels themselves. Of course, they had to uh, fly off to another dimension just to be able to do the work that they thought that they uh, couldn't do here. It's interesting still to see it codified in the programming of one of their recruitment droids. The next thing, highly controversial in our community, oh yes, is that she's... She's astonished that Casey scored a 73 on the Feynman Drummelberg scale. Ah, yes, the magnificent Feynman Drummelberg scale. Feynman was a real person, Richard Phillips Feynman, an American theoretical physicist known for his work in the path integral formulation of quantum mechanics. This is going to become important later to Athena's journey at the end of the film, which delves into our own quantum indeterminacy. But for now, who is this Drummelberg? If it's the Feynman-Drummelberg scale and Feynman was a real person, I get the sense that Drummelberg may indeed be a fictional name that was appended to Feynman to make a very interesting sounding name. Some people misheard Feynman as Feinberg. They, they conflated the two names, Drummelberg and Feynman, into Feinberg. Feinberg has nothing to do with this, I'm happy to clarify. But Drummelberg, we're still not sure who that is. I especially like this because it still implies that Athena is recruiting based off of something. She's not just shooting randomly in the dark. She does have some sort of standards to recruit by. And clearly, those standards are at least a 73 on the Feynman Drummelberg scale. And that seems to be a pretty high number, which we'll touch on again next week. Stay tuned for the continuing adventures of the Feinberg Drum. 
Stay tuned for the continuing adventures of Feynman and Drummelberg and their magnificent scale, which has some bearing on your ability to get into Plus Ultra. If you Google Drummelberg, all the search results are Tomorrowland-related, so I think it's safe to say that he's a purely fictional invention of this universe, and should, 30 years down the line, we get a legacy sequel, I can imagine the mythology of Drummelberg expanded with great dramatic consequence. So Casey keeps pestering for more details. Athena pulls her con about having a countermeasure protocol. Right, and then she shuts down. And while uh, Casey has some alone time, she decides to take a call back home. It's been severely shortened in the film. But here's the original full call in which Casey gives her dad a little bit more to go on, mercifully. Hey, Dad, it's me. Uh, I told Nate to say I was camping, and I'm not camping. I just don't like lying to you. But I didn't really know how to tell you the truth because right now the truth sounds crazy. And by the face you were giving me in the car, I'm, I'm sure it looks crazy too. But something highly unusual is happening. And if it had happened to you, you'd be exactly where I am. Well, maybe not exactly, but okay, the point is this. Dad, I think there's something else. Somewhere else. Some place amazing. I know why you do the whole wolf thing. I know you haven't meant it in a long time, but you still say it. You say it for me. This place I'm going, I don't know why, I can't explain it. But if it's real, if it's what I think it is, maybe when you talk about the things getting better, you'll actually believe it. I love you, Dad. Now, if you watch the edits in the film, this was really shortened and genericized through ADR that allowed them to stitch the very, very beginning to the very, very end of the call and kind of lay it as a post lap over Casey driving in daylight with Athena sleeping next to her. I think that's a pretty touching scene, and it's a shame that they thought the movie couldn't sustain it. I'm not sure why they decided to delete it. Maybe the performance wasn't where they wanted it to be, even though I'm sure it was better than the one I gave just now. But uh, I like the sentiment of it, and it really shows this connection between daughter and father and allows her to say with a little bit more emotional clarity why she's doing what she's doing and what the stakes are for her in this extraordinary situation. Later, Athena finally wakes up to find a totally exhausted Casey who finally capitulates to letting her drive for a short nap. And there's a country song playing on the radio appropriately titled The End is Coming, performed by Leslie McDaniel. It's a song which has to this day never been released. So in that scene, when Athena wakes up, Casey is drinking a cup of coffee. Now, she must have acquired that cup of coffee from where she called her dad on the telephone. It is possible, although she could have made another pit stop in the early morn. Is there a logo on that coffee cup, Asa? It's a, it's a blue coffee cup with some text on the bottom. Um, I'm going to have to wait for the 4K release to figure out what the text says. God willing, we'll be having that in our hands soon, but let's just say I'm not holding my breath. But if it's blue, that means we know it's not Starbucks and probably not Dunkin' Donuts. By process of elimination. It's like an AM, PM, or maybe a, maybe a Chevron Extra Mile. I know they use blue. Now, originally, the radio in the truck was scripted to have had this preacher speaking about the end of days, fire and brimstone. Now, this scene was also shortened with a few fun details omitted. Casey says, 
I thought I broke you or something. What if a cop pulled me over and I had to prove that you're not dead because you're not technically alive? Which then begs the question, what are you doing driving around Texas? Or should I say Arkansas because we crossed the border like four hours ago with a robot from the future? Not the future. I was built in 1957. There weren't robots in 1957. Sure there were. I should drive. (laughs) I like that little casual uh, bit of backstory. So Athena was activated seven years before the World's Fair. Now, we don't really get a lot more about Athena's particular backstory, either in the movie or in any ancillary media. There was there was a bit of a pre-echo referencing her in one of the World's Fair 1939 displays in Before Tomorrowland. But that was not, I don't think, explicitly meant to be the actual Athena, but maybe an early evolution of the AA concept itself. I do remember one fan theory that cropped up around the time the movie came out, that Nix particularly made Athena based on his actual daughter who had died. Now, this is not based on anything in the movie, but it does seem like fans attempting to lend a little bit more pathos to Nix's backstory rather than him just being a totalitarian technocrat. Ah! Oh my God! Are you okay? Yes, fine, thank you. I thought I broke you or something. I should drive. Casey, I know you have no reason to trust me, but I've been looking for someone like you for a very long time. Now, please, pull over. Now, based on the way the scene is edited, it's quite possible that these dialogue bits were filmed, and who knows, they could surface someday. Uh, there's just a cleverly inserted little ADR line to help them jump from the beginning to the end, just like on uh, Casey's phone call. There's also a few lost lines at the start of the next scene, when Casey is finally in the passenger's seat, that refer to that preacher who is going to be on the radio. And it speaks also to Athena's estimation of Casey. Athena says, lovely choice, quite cheerful. It's the only station. I beast up the selectivity of the superhead, but it's tweaky, and I didn't want to use the ratchet tool you had stuck in your neck. I'm impressed. I know how things work. And the end of days is all we got. That's one of those moments where there are probably good, subtle ways to perform that piece of dialogue, but it also might be a little bit too much stating your intention out loud. And it's something that you get from the movie just based on the context of what's going on. And so having a character say... The end of days is all we got. It's just about as literal as having a deleted line from Casey's father we talked about a few episodes ago say, sometimes that's the only wolf that's hungry. Of all the people you could give one of those pens to, why me? Because you're special. (laughs) Yeah. I'm special. You are. So Casey asks Athena why she chose her. Of all the people in the world to give this pin to. Athena says it's because she's special. Casey summarily dismisses this. She knows she's not special, but Athena insists. This introduces one of the ideas being tackled by the drama of the movie, and oddly, one that would be completely interpreted in the opposite direction of what the movie is trying to say by many of its detractors. This movie isn't playing into the chosen one trope. It's intentionally trying to deconstruct and redefine it by asking the question, What makes someone special? Casey can't believe she's special, but Athena insists she is. Athena 
treats her as some kind of chosen one worthy of receiving an exclusive pin for a select club. But as the story plays out beyond the sequence of the film that we're covering in this episode, we come to realize that it's simply not the case. If Casey is special, what has made her so? And here's a hint. It's not the fact that she was destined to be. Quite the contrary. It's a complex existential question that we will tackle next week when we reach my personal favorite, number one with a bullet, favorite scene in the film. I've had other favorites. I will often say this is one of my favorites, but there is one scene in this movie that stands out above all the rest for me, and we're going to be getting to it next week. So this guy we're going to go see. What's his name? His name is Frank. Frank Walker. He's special too. So Casey starts to drift off to sleep as Athena drives because she's been driving clearly from Texas to Arkansas by this point in time. She asks kind of sleepingly, you know, who are we about to go see? And Athena says, Frank Walker. And he's special too. And we get these fantastic flashbacks to the 60s Tomorrowland with them interacting together. Athena has this huge grin on her face in the car. It's just, it's great memories for her. At the very end of this, Frank creates one of those little paper fortune tellers. Right. The little little papers that kids fold and you choose a number and then open up a flap, right? And he opens up the flap. And what does it say inside? It says, scratched in a very kid-like handwriting, we are the future. I love that. You have the beautiful Tomorrowland plus ultra theme playing underneath this whole segment. It is just, it's perfect. I think it's a great payoff for this idea that was set up in the first sequence of the film when Athena declares, I am the future. Whereas inside this paper fortune teller, Frank has written, we are the future. I think this reflects the film's thematic emphasis on community over individualism, just as in the folly of the jetpack throughout as this symbol of a singular escapist fantasy device. Salvation for these characters can only be achieved together. This is a common trope in Disney futurism. We saw this with Horizons at Epcot Center. In GE's phrase, GE's sort of mythos was, if we can dream it, we can do it, right? And then in this sort of twisted way in our society, it got twisted into this idea of being a Walt Disney quote and being, if you can dream it, you can do it. It made it about the individual instead of about the community as a whole. And I feel like this particular scene in Tomorrowland is doing the exact opposite of that, right? It, you know, she's saying, I am the future. Frank says, no, we are the future. And to me, that just echoes so much with this whole, if we can dream it, we can do it. Absolutely. And I think that's another way, thematically, it makes this movie even more timely because we find ourselves in this perpetual loop of reinterpreting Walt as this singular genius who is even less of a person now and more just a marketing character that they can tote out when it's convenient. And you're absolutely right. The transition of that quote from how it was originally used in Horizons as this community-based 
group thing that we can do together into this tchotchke on a hallmark shelf that Walt never actually said, but has been attributed to him saying, you, you individualist American pioneer, you can do it just like I did it, Walt. And it's like, those are the myths that we need to deconstruct about our history. Because even if Walt thought that himself, which I'm not convinced that he did, that's simply not the historical truth of how he got where he was. The team of animators that worked with him, the team of Imagineers that brought all these things, the collaborations, the writers that he held dear. I mean, these captains of industry that came to him, right, and said, we have a product we want to sell. As problematic or not, we want to show what the future we can do with our product is. It was a very we moment, not an individual. Right. That was counter capital at the time. Like that was counter to capitalism at the time. That was competing companies coming together and trying to perhaps for their own personal gain, but at least display the concept of human unity and working together in order to lift us all up. You know, the idea of a rising tide lifts all ships. We're facing that same struggle now. We're at this precipice in our society right now where science has built this amazing thing. Three of these amazing things that are approved as of March 29th, 2021, we have this collective goal as a society. And yet time and time again, like the Knicks monitor broadcasting, we see this, it's doom and gloom. You have to have this specific reason for you to want to take it, right? We don't have this collective shared, even though that's literally what we have to get to as a society. We have to get to this herd immunity. Yet we are pigeonholed into this specific, how do we justify this for the individual? How do we make sure that the individual takes it? And again, you know, it's a side effect of taking these collective shared goals and this collective shared futurism that we have. And instead, trying to linchpin it on the individual experience and the individual decision. It's a difficult thing that we struggle with when dealing with, you know, futurism, whether it be 100 years from now, 10 years from now, five months from now. That's another thing that makes it so frustrating to see both in the immediate aftermath of this movie coming out and in the lingering legacy of the conversations other people have around it this idea that the movie is saying the opposite of what it's actually saying. And that this is a movie that's taking down that idea of individualism. It's the, it's a movie that's taking down the idea of the one great man theory of history. It's trying to tear those things down and replace it with these open community values embodied in the collaboration of these individual characters that would be totally lost without each other. And they each really do need each other to move forward. And this villain, who's this isolationist, single-minded, kick everybody else out, build the wall, close up the walls, close out Tomorrowland, kill the, the bridgeway. He calls us savages, literally, in the film. And yet you have this lingering idea that Tomorrowland is this objectivist text about individualism and some people being better than others. And that is just not what the text of this movie is saying in any way that you can interpret in good faith. And I think you sort of see this, Tomorrowland goes from being this in Before Tomorrowland, the novel, it goes from being this place where you have all these great thinkers coming together with great ideas to change our world and to change the alternate universe. And then over time, it just becomes about the individual man, the individual person, and the idea of everybody else failed, society failed, we can't do it together, only I can keep the lights on at this place, only I can keep the monitor running, like only I can keep it forward. 
and this idea of this eventual failure that's going to happen a lot. And I, I mean, I feel like that, you know, we're at the precipice, we're at the end of this. And yet I still feel like sometimes there's that monitor broadcasting. You're just one more wave from total destruction. And it's like, no, 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 no. We have these amazing tools to resolve this and solve this as long as we all do it together and together the best that we can. Absolutely. And it really is a community effort. And you really feel, I feel like I'm living in a science fiction movie sometimes when you dig into the technical information about how two of those vaccines are working, the Moderna and the Pfizer, and just the way that it's sending information to your body. It reads straight science fiction. It really is the most unbelievable concept to think in this short span of time, it's been actively distributed to the point where it's coursing through both of our veins right now. I mean, that is, that's unfathomable to me. It, it's, it's completely unthinkable before because we all had this idea of what a vaccine was. But the idea of the mRNA. Like this is some straight up Tomorrowland stuff yeah. in our society right now. And yet we're faced with this same challenge of, you know, we gave you this great power and this great this 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 great science and these people came together and it's like you know our excuse that we're trying to give each other to take it is like don't you want to go back and eat out of chilies again and it's like no it should be this collective like don't you want to get this thing for society and correct me if i'm wrong but it did also take the collaboration of multiple corporations multiple pharmaceutical corporations deciding to work together right in order to do this that's the truth absolutely and that's you know somewhat unheard of in modern times right it's this cynicism that i think flows through people of oh well they only did it for the money or they only did it and it's very much that we're captain of the Titanic. We know the iceberg's coming and we're steering right into it because, you know, we want to fail. And sometimes I feel like society is frustratingly at that point when we're at the brink of something awesome. Right. In the abstract, it can feel a little bit maudlin to complain about how hard it is to be an optimist in modern society when you're just pushing against the general idea of cynicism and sarcasm. But this is a real concrete example of where it's like, no, optimism is hard because of how the culture has decided to react to this. This is the demonstrable moment where it says, it takes some cultural effort to be publicly optimistic about our solutions right now. It's a struggle that I've always related to in the abstract, but now to have it kind of flowing through every day where, yeah, man, sometimes that monitor signal gets in real deep with me. But then there are other times when I step back and I think about it and it's like, no, point over here. Yes, we are, we are inundated with a sensory overload of information every day of our lives. But if we can curate and remember to hold on to those moments when, no, no, we really did come together. Those are victories. Those are human victories. Those are victories we can all share. We need more stories that celebrate stuff like that. And that's why we're going to continue to celebrate Tomorrowland as long as it continues to remain relevant both to the culture and to our lives. So thank you all for joining us. If you have any questions or comments, feel free to drop us a line on Twitter at The Tomorrow Time or send us an email at press at tomorrowlandtimes.com. That's P-R-E-S-S at tomorrowlandtimes.com. If you'd like to record us an audio message, we'd love to hear any memories that you might have the first time you saw Tomorrowland. You know, maybe even what we talked about, stuff that you feel like Tomorrowland connects to your personal life right now. Uh, send it to us and we'll probably play it on a future episode. We want to thank everyone for continuing to take this walk through Tomorrowland with us. Join us next time as we witness 
the flicker. We'll be joining you, as always, from Tomorrowland Times, which we will keep alive as long as humanly possible to ensure that there's always a place where dreamers can stick together. <laughs>